0: Welcome to the Theology on Tap Chattanooga podcast. In each episode, we feature a different lecture given by a writer, scholar, or public intellectual. Each of these talks explores the intersection between theology and culture, and how theology can help better guide us toward the common good of society. These talks are given live at our monthly Theology on Tap events at the Camp House in Chattanooga, Tennessee. For more information and to find out when our next live event is, check out our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash Theology on Tap Chattanooga. Now, here is this week's episode. We hope you enjoy listening. Welcome, guys. Thanks for coming out to Theology on Tap. Uh, I just got a text from someone at the camphouse that said there's like 10 or 15 people at the camphouse because normally uh, we do the camp. We do. Yeah, you guys read the details. So good job. You read the fine print. Uh, there's actually a corporate event at the Camp House tonight, so Al agreed to host the event tonight, so thanks for coming out uh, and hosting it, um, Al. Uh, all, like you've already probably seen, there's beer, beer and wine available for purchase, there's also some... Uh, baked goods that Heather Allison had made for you guys that you can purchase and coffee goods, all that stuff. So um, the format for tonight is uh, David will give his lecture. Um, We'll take a short break so you guys can uh, think of questions. We're going to do text questions. I'll tell you more about that in a second. Um, And then we'll come back. And if you want to leave early, you can, or if you want to come back for the uh, Q&A, you can as well. Um, So that's kind of the format for this evening. Um, just so you aren't, if you aren't aware, if this is your first time to come to Theology on Tap, we've been doing Theology on Tap for about 10 years in Chattanooga, Um, and we have a lot of, we have every talk we've ever done recorded, and they're all on the Chattanooga, um, it's called the Theology on Tap Chattanooga podcast. So if you want to go back and listen to the archives, um, Theology on Tap is a lecture series which is sponsored by the Camp House, um, and it explores the threshold of our public life and culture with faith and theology. Um, and we have various scholars and academics that have come throughout the years. Um, also, for future events, be sure to like the Theology on Tap Chattanooga Facebook page. There's a lot of Theology on Taps out there, so you have to search Theology on, Chat, Theology on Tap Chattanooga to find it. So make sure and like it to look for our next events. So let me give you an intro to our lecture tonight. So David A. Ritchie serves as the lead pastor of Redeemer Christian Church. And is a professor of religion at West Texas A&M University. In his scholarly research, D- uh, Ritchie interrogated how nationalist movements operate less like a political ideology and more like a spiritually charged religion. This research has culminated—sorry, I lost my notes. This, this research has culminated in the writing of his book *Why Did the Nations Rage*, which was actually published on January sixth. The Demonic Origins of Nationalism but by Wittenstock. This fall, David will be presenting a paper at the American Academy of Religion annual meeting entitled Sketching a Christology of Nationalism, How Nationalism Utilizes Messianic Characterizations to Elicit Spiritual Devotion and Religious Affection. Richie is a highly engaged leader in the West Texas community, serving on various boards and numerous nonprofits, organizations and ministries, including the Refugee Language Project and the Redeemer Network. David's married and has three kids, so without further ado, please welcome David.
1: Good evening. Truly, it's an honor to be with you all this this evening. I'm honored to be in Tennessee, honored to be in, in Red Bank. And honored to be able to, to speak to a group of people uh, about uh, an issue that is near and dear to my heart and something that I think is uh, just an instrumentally important issue to understand in terms of our culture and, and this particular moment that we live in. Early in 2021, I was doing what a lot of people were doing in early 2001, which is I was getting ready for a, a day that was essentially going to be back to back meetings on Zoom. and. It was essentially a moment that was a replacement for a pastor's conference that I was supposed to attend in person. And it was a group of pastors talking about this experience of the pandemic and shepherding the people of God, trying to lead and make sense in this moment of time that was so marked by political division and seeing that political division even ripple through congregations, uh, through the body of Christ. And as we were talking, a moderator asked the question, posed the question, of what we see as some of the greatest threats pressing in upon the people of God. What are some of the pressures that we're facing from the outside world that are, that are in some ways challenging the people of God to, to forget their devotion to Jesus Christ or to obscure the gospel of Jesus Christ? And I put forward something that I'd been studying, something that i have been doing a lot of scholarly research on, and I said, I, I really do believe that it's nationalism. More particularly, especially when it comes in the form of Christian nationalism. I I think that at least in my community, um, this is the the greatest rival religion that exists. It's the greatest thing that is pressing in upon the people that I love, the people that I serve, the community that I I truly believe that I've been sent to. It's, It's the thing that is sounding a lot like Christianity, but with a completely different meaning. Something that is essentially replacing the the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified with something that is entirely different. And in this moment, as I was explaining this, I was receiving a few little bits of pushback from some of the pastors, and uh, one pastor in particular was asking me to define my terms and to suggest, you know, if nationalism even exists or Christian nationalism exists, is it that big of a deal? Is it something that is really as big of a deal as you're making out to be? And in that moment, as I was participating in this call my wife comes into the room and says you need to turn on the television Um, you need to uh, stream online what's happening right now um, because you're going to need to see this and it of course was january 6 2021 that's by the way where you can send your text messages to oops i've lost the ability to do this (laughs) i've heard that this happens is it able to go are you able to switch it Let's go just rotate through a few of these, um, these different pictures. Uh, essentially, the, these images of violence, images of people breaking in. And, and what was so haunting to me was not just images of our lawmakers fleeing the Senate and House chambers and people clashing with law enforcement officers, but it was particularly these images of the cross next to the gallows, gallows that people were shouting that the Vice President of the United States needed to be hung on. And what was just so grievous to me is not only was this the most sustained invasion in our nation's capital since the War of 1812, which it was, but that essentially there were people that were there that seemed to be suggesting that this was done in the name of Jesus, or that the cause of Christ was somehow justifying this as as a moral good, as a part of who the people of God needed to be. And the image of Christ, particularly in the MAGA hat, was shocking because it's showing that this movement was not as much about seeing a political movement supporting Christ, but utilizing, instrumentalizing Christ to support this political movement. And so from that moment on, um, this phrase that really hadn't been extremely popular to that point enters into the cultural vocabulary. Now, Christian nationalism is something that trends every other weekend on Twitter based on who is talking about it or who's even appropriating the title. And I do think it's, it's important to be able to recognize something like the Capitol riot as a type of apocalyptic moment, not in the sense of it speaks to the end of the world, But an apocalyptic moment in the sense that it unveiled something. It unveiled something true about the nature of our nation. Something true about uh, what the people of God are are, are tempted towards. And this topic of Christian nationalism um, now being understood as something that actually has the capacity to potentially challenge and unravel American democracy, is is now really being studied in earnest um, from all kinds of different avenues, particularly in the social sciences. And it makes sense to study Christian nationalism or nationalism on a broader scale from a historical standpoint or the standpoint of political science or the standpoint of sociology. And I don't want to diminish in the least bit the importance of, of those academic studies. But as a pastor and as a scholar of religion, One of my aims was, is there an ability to actually look into the Word of God and to see if the Word of God unveils and uncovers maybe a capacity to understand this phenomenon in a way that the mere social sciences are simply not capable of seeing. And so I set out essentially to uncover really the spiritual realities, that embolden and charge this movement that we might call nationalism, to furnish biblical language and theological categories to understand what nationalism is, and especially to equip Christians uh, to be able to talk about this, to be able to understand it in in ways that are not just biblical but intelligible, in ways that are hearable to the very people that are oftentimes most tempted towards this. And, And so the big thesis of my book and the thesis of my talk tonight is that, Nationalism, as as a broad movement, is best understood not as a political ideology, but as a spiritually charged religion. That spiritual, in the sense that there is truly a a spiritual aspect, a spiritual agency that fuels nationalism's potency, as well as its ability to seduce and deceive. But it's also a religion. It, It is something that comes with its own orthodoxy, its own orthopraxy. It comes with a spiritual community. It comes with spiritual rhythms and rituals that help propagate this religion as well. And more than that, I do believe that it's a religion that's quite distinct from and different and incompatible with Christianity. In fact, one of my goals tonight is I, I hope to be able to give you new ways to see, if you don't already, that Christianity and Christian nationalism are not just incompatible religions. They are, in every bit of the term, rival religions. And so we have to unmask it first, that Christians and churches need to actually be aware of this so that they can address it as it's a, it's a, it's a major issue facing our community and our culture. Um, like many heresies that have risen up over the ages of the church, it must be met by the church. And, and so I do want you to know that my interest in this is not purely speculative, it's not just as a standpoint of this is an interesting thing to study in religious scholarship, I'm speaking to this issue primarily as a pastor, a pastor in West Texas, a very conservative place, a place that I've grown up, a place that I love, but a place that has been immensely wounded at a spiritual level because of what I believe is a false religion. I personally witnessed a marriage of a family that was close to me come to an end, and QAnon was a contributing factor. I know a pastor who has been approached by a militia group to see if he would be interested in participating and joining them in their cause. I've seen families become irreparably wounded. I've seen congregations become irreparably wounded because of this. And and so more than that, one of the things that we're seeing as well is that when people are walking away from the faith, a lot of times what they're walking away from is not Christianity, But Christian nationalism, there is a sense where people have begun to be rightfully disgusted by the hypocrisy and the ends justify the means type of outlook um, that Christian nationalism can oftentimes uh, intend to justify its actions by. And and so I I do hope that you see that this is not just a a work of speculative theology, but intensely pastoral theology. Why Do the Nations Rage? My book is is essentially a, a book that is meant to address a heresy that is leading many people in the community of God astray. Now, I do want to give the caveat that probably every author gives whenever they come to a talk like this, is I cannot cover every single aspect of my book. Um, There's a lot more detail in the book. There's a lot more argumentation, rationale, justification given. But I do want to uncover some major ideas, essentially in this lecture that I want to title, A Christian Critique of Christian Nationalism. And there are essentially four headings that I want to uncover as we go through today. First of all, we're going to define Christian nationalism. Secondly, we're going to examine the spiritual origins of Christian nationalism. We're going to unmask the false gospel of Christian nationalism. And lastly, we are going to be considering a Christian response to Christian nationalism. So point number one, we do need to define our terms. And before we can even define Christian nationalism, we need to define nationalism. And the, the big category itself. And before we can even do that, we have to understand some things that nationalism itself is oftentimes confused and conflated with. So we're going to talk about nations as well as the concept of patriotism. Nations in just the, the social sciences is actually one of the most difficult terms to define. It's nebulous. It's something that is somewhat of a, a problematic term because the, the concept of a nation is kind of like ethnicity. It's kind of like a state. It's kind of like a geographical territory. It can sometimes even be something that describes a people that have been bound together by a common vision for civic government. But it's not any one of those things in isolation. It is something that is this inherently immaterial concept, probably the the best and the most significant definition that has been offered about uh, nation in the term "nation" is one that's been offered by a man named Benedict Anderson, a political scientist who is is now no longer with us. He, he defines the nation essentially as an imagined community. It's imagined not in the sense that it's it's not real, or not in the sense that it is uh, it's kind of in the, in the realm of fairy tales. It's imagined in the sense that it's something that we share together in our social imaginary. And so, the vast majority of you I've never met in my life. I don't necessarily have that much community with a person who lives in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and and maybe a person who's an entrepreneur or a restaurateur. But what is something that binds us and that we don't even have to argue that binds us is that we share a commonality, the nation that we share. We're a part of the same imagined community. And so I want you to know that to critique nationalism is not to critique the existence of nations. Um, nations are, are part of our given reality. It is to critique something that is, we're going to see later on, a, a misappropriation of the nation. And, and so already, though, the one key thought I want you to have in your mind is that nation is something that is inherently immaterial. And therefore, it's easy to kind of conflate with or be confused with certain spiritual realities. The other term that I think is important for us to understand in terms of what nationalism is not is patriotism. Patriotism and nationalism are not only different words, but in some ways they can be contrasted against one another. In fact, this is a, a distinction that you see oftentimes in nationalism studies, is that essentially patriotism can be defined as a positive, a virtuous love for nation that is essential to a shared civic society. Um, that We do want to have a rightly ordered love for nation. And that's how I would argue a a good theological way to see patriotism is as a love for nation that is rightly ordered, that has love in the right place. It's an extension of love for one's neighbor that exists in that imaginary community of the nation. It's a responsibility, you could even argue, that comes with the privilege of shared citizenship. And so, If patriotism becomes problematic, which it is becoming problematic right now, we might even offer other terms like national solidarity, uh, simply seeking the common good for one's nation, that it's something that we need to share together in order to promote national peace, common defense, justice, common flourishing. And what I want you to see in that idea is that there are much better terms to use for a rightly ordered love for one's nation than simply nationalism. Because a lot of advocates for nationalism will immediately say, well, if you're not a nationalist, you don't love your nation. And what I want to argue is that we have words for those terms that, that express a rightly ordered love for nation. And so nationalism, if we understand it as, as not nations or not patriotism, nationalism is best understood as a paramount supreme loyalty underneath which all other loyalties and allegiances must be subordinated. Uh, a Brazilian general, uh, a guy named um, Quoto El Silva, said to be a nationalist is always to be ready to give up any doctrine, any theory, any ideology, feelings, passions, ideals, and values, as soon as they appear to be incompatible with supreme loyalty, which is due the nation. Above everything else, nationalism is and must be and cannot possibly be anything other than an absolute one in itself and its purpose as well as an absolute end, at least as long as the nation continues as such. There is no place, nor should there be, nor could there be for nationalism as a simple instrument to another purpose that transcends it. You see that language of ultimacy, that language of my nation, or or better said, my political vision of a nation is the highest good. It is my ultimate love. And so theologically defined, nationalism is when love for one's nation or one's vision of a nation twists into idolatry. It's when our love for nation becomes an ultimate good. It becomes something that's in the realm of the highest good and ultimate concern. And when you start talking about the highest good or ultimate concern, we are now crossing a line. We're leaving the category of a political affiliation or an opinion, and now we're in the realm of the religious affections. We're talking about the language of the heart. We're talking, quite frankly, about worship, which is very much an issue of concern for Christians and especially Christian leaders. Now, I do want you to know that there is a moment that's fomenting among some conservative political thinkers. And this really started kind of in the 1980s that is trying to redefine nationalism in kind of a different way that stands outside the body of literature of nationalism studies. Um, they will cast nationalism as one way to oppose something like globalism. Um, they will see it's basically we got to be able to put the needs of our nation first. We want to preserve our own sovereignty. And, and there's a, a way that you can describe that concept, not necessarily with using those terms. But what I want you to see in that is, is that That is a novel redefinition, a reclamation of a word that is intended to connote negative extremism. It's intended to connote this idea of love for nation gone awry. Nationalism studies was a body of of literature that came especially after World War I and even more so after World War II. And you can understand why, right? I mean, after World War II, there are intellectuals all across the world saying, how can we never let this happen again? How can we understand what causes a Hitler? How can we understand something like the the causes and the justifications behind something like the horror of the Holocaust? And so one of the things that a lot of the nationalist scholars understood that I think is a really important idea to help us understand nationalism as a broad category is that nationalism is not inherently bound to any one ethnicity. It's not something that's bound to any one nation state. It's not something that's even bound to any one political ideology. We oftentimes think of nationalism as inherently something that belongs on the side of the political right. But there have been instances in history where nationalism has taken more of a leftist turn. And so you could actually say that not only was Hitler a nationalist, Stalin was a nationalist too. As was Joseph McCarthy. Completely wildly different political ideologies, but a shared ultimate love for their political vision of the nation as an ultimate good. And so the reason I think this helps us is because it shows us that something like nationalism is not unique to America, and it's not unique to this particular moment. And that helps us to actually see it. It helps us to understand it. And so a lot of what I do in the book is not just a focus on American nationalism. And some people, that disappoints them. They, they want me to just talk about Nationalism in America right now in this moment. And there are plenty of books that talk about that. But I wanted to intentionally broaden our horizons to see a wide angle vision of nationalism. I wanted to see it in other nations. I wanted to see how Christian nationalism even can happen in other nations and other points in history. Emily Dickinson said, you know, tell all the truth but tell it slant. It's sometimes when we're able to see things from a different perspective, then and only then are we able to actually come to a true knowledge. And so, an example I think that helps us understand this comes from the mind of C.S. Lewis. Um, if you're familiar with the Screwtape Letters, Screwtape Letters is this really innovative fictional story of letters written by a high ranking demon to a lower ranking demon. This lower ranking demon, his nephew, Screwtape, or his nephew, Wormwood, rather, has just gotten his first patient. It's the, essentially the, the human he's going to torment and tempt. and Essentially, Screwtape, the uncle, is trying to write to his junior demon to tell him, this is how you can outwit your patient. This is how you can avoid the attacks of the enemy. And the enemy, of course, is God. And this is, of course, happening as World War II is happening. And there's all kinds of you know, political thought happening in Britain at the time. And one of the things that Screwtape tempts his patient with or encourages his nephew to tempt his patient with is extremism in their political opinions. Um, already, the patient's kind of flirting with Christianity, flirting with God. And so he says, you know, I don't care what you do. You might want to tempt him with extreme pacifism or maybe a, a extreme um, patriotism that is willing to go to war. Um, I don't care what you do. I just want it to be extreme. It needs to be the highest love. And this is what uh, C.S. Lewis says, and I should have a slide for this, by the way. Let him begin by treating the patriotism or the pacifism as part of, Of his religion. Then let him, under the influence of the partisan spirit, come to regard it as the most important part. Then quietly and gradually nurse him to the stage at which religion becomes merely part of the cause, in which Christianity is valued chiefly because of the excellent arguments it can produce in favor of the British war effort or of pacifism. Once you have made the world an end, and faith a means, you have almost won your man. And it makes very little difference of what kind of worldly end he is pursuing, providing that meetings, pamphlets, policies, movements, and crusades matter more to him than prayers and sacraments and charity. He is ours. The more religious on those terms, the more securely ours. See, it's not just something that's... In American nationalism. This is a spiritual tactic. This is uh, something that is a besetting temptation for the people of God for generations. So with all that said, with that broad definition of nationalism, I do want to now kind of come to what Christian nationalism is. Christian nationalism is not public witness of Christians in the political realm. It is not Christian influence or involvement in politics or the exercise of a political theology. See, many confuse and conflate Christian nationalism with the Christian prophetic witness. But the menace of Christian nationalism is not in Christianity influencing politics, but rather in politics twisting Christianity in something that is antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christian nationalism is essentially nationalism as an ideology instrumentalizing, co-opting, and commandeering the gospel and the people of God for its own agenda promoting a particular vision for the kingdom of man as if it were the kingdom of God. And so if nationalism is best understood as a religion, I think the best way for Christians to understand something like Christian nationalism is to understand Christian nationalism as a form of religious syncretism. If you're familiar with what that term means, syncretism is essentially a fusion religion. It's two opposite religions that are somehow mashed together. I live in Amarillo, Texas, and we have a a tremendously large Lao and Thai population. Um, We're a place where a lot of refugees from around the world come. And we have a large Thai and Lao population because they came as refugees in the 1980s. They created a lot of really good Thai restaurants. And one of the most interesting dishes that has come out of this experience is something that is known as jalapeno fried rice. Okay, It's a fusion of Mexican cuisine and... Also, Thai cuisine, it's a a fusion, and it's really good. Christian nationalism is not a good fusion. (laughs) They don't go together. It doesn't taste good. But it's very similar to the wicked king, Jeroboam, essentially worshiping Baal, but calling him Yahweh. The Christian Gnostics of the early centuries I've even heard um, one pastor in El Salvador essentially say, you know, the type of Roman Catholicism that oftentimes passes in, in this place is less of Roman Catholicism and it's more of old Mayan polytheism and the thin veneer of Roman Catholics and Roman Catholic aesthetics. Anything can become an idol. Anything can become something that's an ultimate good, but when we elevate the nation," To something of an ultimate good. I want to argue something even further. It's something that becomes particularly spiritually charged. Particularly connected with spiritual forces of darkness. And especially when we, when we take something like nationalism and put it in the veneer of Christianity. Not only are, are we flirting with a heresy. Not only are we flirting with an idolatry. But something that I do want to argue is truly demonic. And that leads us to our second point. Which is that we're going to examine the spiritual origins of nationalism. One of the earliest readers of my book um, actually gave me one of my favorite lines of feedback. He said, you know, I came for the nationalism, but I stayed for the demons, right? (laughs) And I love that piece of feedback because this is where I think the Bible offers something that's truly, truly fascinating. And essentially, the biblical lens that I want to choose to be able to explore this topic of nationalism is that of Paul the Apostle's doctrine of power's and principalities. Um, Oftentimes in the King James, they're called powers and principalities, and so we stick with that term. However, in more modern translations, it's typically translated as rulers and authorities. The famous verse is, of course, Ephesians chapter 6, and there should be a slide for this. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So, what we see here when we're describing powers is not just demons that torment and tempt. The powers oftentimes seem as spiritual forces over territories, over entire groups of people. It's a way that the Bible gives us theological language to imagine and understand corporate, structural, and systemic forms of evil. It's a lot of times what the psalmist will get at when. They will say the principle of injustice being essentially framed. Um, it's in, encoded within the way that we do the fabric of our lives or the fabric that the state operates. And the doctrine of powers was essentially neglected for a long time among Protestants after the Enlightenment. Um, I heard one author say, "You know, we barely had enough room for God after the Enlightenment, let alone angels and demons. But when we lost that, we lost the capacity... To see something that the Bible shows us about the nature of our reality. That there is a way to understand the corporate nature of evil that we experience in our lives, but oftentimes lack the capacity to name. And so there was a reemergence in scholarship and theology on the powers, and guess when it, when it came? Right after World War II. Theologians were asking the same questions that historians were: how can this never happen again? And so A great example for maybe the powers at play comes from the book, Rapes of Wrath, which is a special book to me because it comes, essentially, it tells the story of the people of where I'm from. The Dust Bowl has happened, and there's a farmer in Oklahoma who is going to essentially lose his land. He he offered up his land as collateral. Um, Crops were still not able to grow, and so the bank has come to be able to take away his land. He, He wants to fight for it. He wants to be able to to shoot the guy that's coming to tell him that he's taking his land away. He's like, you can't shoot me because I'm not the one that's doing it. It's not me. It's the bank. Well, it's like, well, can I go to the bank and shoot someone there? He's like, well, no. That's, That's not the person who's making the decision as well. Even our bank is kind of like ruled and governed by some of these investors on the East Coast. And he says, the bank is something else than men. It happens every man in a bank hates what the bank does and yet the bank does it. The bank is something more than men, I tell you. It is the monster. Men made it, but they can't control it. And you start to see this idea that there is a spiritual aspect, a spiritual agency that is kind of perpetuating this corporate evil. And so the powers helps us understand how there's a, a spirituality that takes on a transhuman quality. It's Inanimate structures, communities that are able to twist communities of people into monstrous entities. The powers perpetuate the fallenness of God's creation. Dehumanization of God's image bearers. They are whom the, the reason why the bankmen can essentially expel a starving family from their, their home. They are why the Nazi sh- soldier feels compelled to just follow o- orders as they shut the gas chamber door. In fact, one theologian who's one of the great scholars of powers writing around this time of World War II, he says, um, Heinrich Burkhoff, when Hitler took the helm in Germany in 1933, the powers of Volk, the people, right, the race, the state, took a new grip on men. Thousands were grateful after the confusion of the preceding years to find their lives, again, protected from the chaos, order, and security restored. No one could withhold himself without the utmost effort from the grasp of these powers that they had on men's inner and outer life. While studying in Berlin, I myself experienced almost literally how such powers may be in the air. They acted as if they were ultimate values, calling loyalty as they were the gods of the cosmos. And so, I want to argue that if we're going to understand nationalism, that there is a connection between the powers and the nations. The powers and a disordered love for the nation. And the reason I base that is not on simply what I just described, that corporate nature of evil, but really where Paul himself is drawing this terminology from. Because Paul's not just inventing new terms. He is actually drawing into a rich and fascinating Old Testament history and heritage that oftentimes we are very unaware of. It's a way of viewing reality, a way of viewing the world that is tremendously far away from us. And I want to argue that this temptation to idolize the nation and to allow the spiritual realities of the nation to almost seduce us and deceive us and lead us astray is not something that happened during the rise of the modern nation state. It is quite literally as old as Babel. From the moment the nations of this world and the peoples of this world came together, and rather than having dominion over the earth as God's vice regents and spreading the image of God and cultivating creation, they chose to come together and build the city of man, the kingdom of man. And they wanted to elevate that kingdom into the heavens. They wanted to bring their kingdom and elevate their kingdom essentially to the place where only divinity belongs. And God judges them. He scatters them. But there is another portion of the Bible that talks about Bible about the Babel moment and gives a level of theological commentary on it. And this is where we get a lot of this idea of the powers and the principalities. This comes from Deuteronomy chapter 32. There should be a slide for this that says, When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when He divided mankind, so we're talking about Babel, He fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is His people. Jacob is his allotted heritage. One scholar um, has designated this Deuteronomy 32 description of Babel as the Romans chapter 1 moment of the Old Testament. Romans chapter 1, we see that the wrath of God is not God throwing thunderbolts at humanity. It's essentially God recognizing that we have chosen creation rather than the creator, and God says, you can have what you want. At Babel, When God divides the nations, when he divides the languages, he says, okay, I'm giving you your idol. I'm giving you what you want. You want to build the kingdom of man? Go for it. But what Deuteronomy chapter 32 shows us is that the moment that this happens, the nations of this world are essentially enslaved into this oppressive relationship of spiritual dominion, um, a spiritual dominion of spiritual forces that in some ways have an authority that have an oppressive government over the kingdoms of men. And Deuteronomy 32 is so important because it shows that there's a spiritual agency behind all of this. In fact, oftentimes this is called the Deuteronomy 32 worldview or cosmic geography. If you're familiar with the scholar Michael S. Heiser, um, he's a great uh, popular, uh, one who popularizes this notion. And when we're talking about these spiritual beings that seem to have almost like an oppressive rule over the nations, you need to understand that they're not gods that are on the same level as Yahweh, the creator. They're lowercase gods. They're pagan gods. They're not the creator. They're a part of creation. They're essentially on the same level as almost like angelic beings. But they are beings that rule the nations, that they, they tend to have an ability to create oppression and injustice. These are demonic beings that are worshipped as gods, the gods of the nations. So, what this shows us is that humanity is not only fractured by sin; the nations are themselves, after this moment in Babel, in spiritual bondage. But that God will bring these sons of God, the Elohim, into account. And though He judged the nation, all who judges the nations rather, He will also have a plan of redemption for them. And this is how people in the ancient Near East simply saw their reality. It's how they intuited the world that was around them. And by the way, this whole idea helps us understand passages of the Bible that are otherwise almost impossible to understand. Have you ever read Psalm chapter 82 and been confused by it? Well, now read it in light of Deuteronomy chapter 32. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. So it's God speaking to the gods over the nations. He says, How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. You are God's sons of the Most High. You see that Deuteronomy 32 language. All of you, nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge of the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. So we have this idea of nations being ruled by spiritual beings, that God has essentially turned them over to their idols, to their sin, as a form of judgment, but that God has not utterly abandoned them, that he does have a plan for redemption. And this is, of course, where the powers come in. When Paul Is talking about the principalities and the powers. He is playing into this language. He is playing into this Deuteronomy chapter 32 worldview. Paul is the apostle to the nations, and he's not just seeing his apostleship as going into the nations. He is proclaiming a gospel of liberation from the powers and the rulers and the authorities. That something has happened. In the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, something has happened in his glorious ascension that has now dethroned the authority of the powers. That's delegitimized them. In Christ Jesus, he, he essentially has done something. Through his death, he has taken away the, the greatest weapon that the powers held over the peoples of the world. In his, his life and in his resurrection, he has essentially conquered the power that held such a negative authority over the nations of this world. And so one of the things that you'll notice when you read a book like Ephesians or Colossians, and if you ask the questions, okay, the powers exist, but what are the powers doing? Essentially what they're operating is, they're trying to convince the Jew and the Gentile to no longer embrace their oneness in Christ, to no longer embrace their identity in Christ, but to instead revert back to their old ethnic identity, and to say, that's the most important thing about me to revert back into their old cultural allegiances or their their national loyalties. And Paul is saying, no. When the Jew and Gentile come together, it is a manifestation. It's a, a display of the manifold wisdom of God to the nations. So Paul prays that Christians would know in Ephesians 1, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come see Paul sees his mission to the nations as, as something of an announcement of the coming of the kingdom of God by virtue of his resurrection and his ascension Jesus has been given authority over all heaven and over all of earth that God has now reclaimed the authority of the powers for himself. And therefore, the people of God may now go and bring the gospel to all nations, to make disciples of all nations, because he has been given the power and the authority. Gentiles, people from non-Jewish ethnic backgrounds, now are fair game to receive the proclamation of the good news of King Jesus. They are welcome to be totally included within the people of God. And and a vivid case study of this happens actually as Paul is planting the church of Ephesus. Ephesus is this really glorious multi-ethnic church of Jew and Gentile coming together, and the gospel is being declared and displayed in such a powerful way that it actually changes the fabric of the economy in Ephesus. Because Ephesus, after all, houses one of the great wonders of the world, the the temple of Artemis. And there's an industry of idol-making that is essentially promoted by this this temple site. But the declaration of the gospel goes forth in such a powerful way that people start abandoning Artemis. So much so that people throw a riot to stop Christians. I mean, I think that's just such a glorious example of, you know, what what would it look like for Christians today? Say, how would a gospel movement be so powerful in, in such a way of overcoming the idols of our culture that it changes the very fabric of how our economy works? That it It reframes the way that our our life together operates according to a vision of justice. That's that's what the gospel has the power to do. That's oftentimes no longer how we see the gospel going forth today in our own cultural moment. So what I hope you see in this is that there was once a period of time when essentially to worship a, a national patron deity, like the Ephesians, to worship Artemis. Or to have someone like a Moabite like Ruth worshiping a false god like Chemosh. That was a part of their ethnic identity. But Ruth is a great example because when she says, your people will be my people, by coming a part of this community, by coming to this land, I'm transferring my loyalty from this God of the nation to a new God, to the true God. And this forms a pattern of what the gospel is meant to do. It's meant to essentially dethrone and expose the spiritual powers that keep us apart, that keep us in bondage, that use our cultural loyalties and our ethnicity and our national identity as ways to keep us apart and to perpetuate injustice. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is meant to be This moment that actually breaks those chains and sets us free and welcomes us not only into the life of Christ but a life that we share together that is only possible because of the life of Christ. It leads me to my third point which is that we want to unmask the false gospel of Christian nationalism. One of the things that we see in the New Testament is that wherever there are demons there are also false doctrines that those demons teach. And I believe that not only does nationalism have a demonic origin, but that it perpetuates a demonic false gospel. And in fact, what I do in the book is I walk through the Apostles' Creed, and I examine a lot of the major articles of the Christian faith, and I show that nationalist movements throughout history and from around the globe all have a distorted version, essentially, of the Christian gospel. That Christianity has its own, obviously, its, its view of worship and theology, its own doctrine of salvation and Christology, of the church, of eschatology, our ultimate hope. But so does nationalism. Now, I don't have time to unpack every single one of those doctrines, but I do want to draw your attention to one of those, which is simply the doctrine of Christology. Christians believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he's completely God and he's completely man. That we needed a Savior that would be able to actually take upon himself our sin and the evil of this world and to overcome its power. And so we needed a God. We needed a Messiah that was completely God and completely man. And so Christology is going to have these ideas like the God-man, the one who has two natures and bridges the gap between heaven and earth. The Messiah or the Christ is the messianic king, the anointed one, the suffering servant. Another thing that the Messiah is or the Christ is is the resurrected and the ascended king and the promised one who is to return. I want to briefly for a moment unfold how this has operated throughout history even in various forms of nationalism. In fact, in some of the oldest forms of religion that we know about, there's always been this conflation between what we worship and the state, those who are in power. And so in the ancient Near East, we, we see... Men who are kings that are elevated to a status of godhood. In ancient Egypt, we, we see the pharaoh as the one who is the image of Ra and the very embodiment of the god Horus. Again, we have this idea of the god-man. This is why, by the way, I, I think that Julius Caesar you know, was very eager to claim Aeneas as his ancient ancestor because Aeneas was supposed to be the son of a goddess, And essentially, there's all these attempts for either leaders themselves or the followers of a leader to kind of put the semi-divine status upon these people that are going to lead us and to set us free and to make us great. So one great way to be able to see this is in how this uh, impacts our current political imaginary is is through some of the arts. And so I want to show you a painting by an artist named John McNaughton. He is an artist that is based out of Utah, And this is a painting, if you can pull it up, sir, is a a painting called You Are Not Forgotten. I want to describe some of the things that are happening here because you might not be able to see it. The the subject of the painting really is this family, a blue-collar family that are kneeling together before this plant that is growing out of dry ground. And if you're familiar with the phrase, a root out of dry ground, you'll recognize that's a reference to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 53, particularly... The Song of the Suffering Servant. And they're watering this plant that is coming out of the dry ground. And they're surrounded by what you could call maybe a cloud of witnesses. Military veterans. Warriors. Members of law enforcement. As they surround the president. And the president, the former president, is in the golden mean of the painting. And he's smiling down beneficently you know, with his hands essentially blessing this, this new moment. It's almost inviting us to imagine the, the Trump presidency as this new genesis of a new era. A new kingdom has come. But the most impactful thing of the entire painting is what is underneath his left foot. And that is, he is crushing the head of a serpent. And so, I simply want to suggest, um, if you're a Christian, and maybe if you're, you're sympathetic and even a supporter of President Trump, we should all agree that this is heretical. That this is blasphemous that there is one who is meant to crush the head of the serpent, and it's not him, right? But it is inviting us to to not just see a political cause as the best way forward for a nation. It's inviting us to see the leader of this cause in an intentionally messianic light. It's according to a spiritual import. But lest we get ahead of ourselves... It's not just the right side of the political spectrum that does this. There's another painting that I'd like to show you that's called The Truth. It was painted by an artist named Michael Duantono in New York. And and he wasn't painting it as a promotion of Obama as the Messiah. Instead, this is a work of satire. What he is honestly owning in, though, in this moment, is that we have this almost inescapable temptation to put messianic expectations on our leaders. And then, when they fail those expectations or they don't meet the expectations that we want, what do we do with those leaders? Well, we crucify them, right? By the way, if you overlay that painting on uh, Matthias Grunewald's um, Isenheim altarpiece, they're exactly the same. Exactly the same angles, and that is extremely intentional. The idea here is that we do have these, these... Expectations for our leaders to not just be leaders, but Christ figures. We oftentimes see their suffering as redemptive suffering. We oftentimes uh, will will view their mission as a messianic mission. And even in uh, President Obama's own autobiography, he describes the moment of dreaming about his first presidential campaign as a type of a way to essentially inaugurate a new covenant for the people of America. Which again is messianic language. It it is something that is a temptation that is so real. But it's not just for this moment. Um, Again, I want to argue that this is an impulse that has happened for a long time. If you're familiar with what the term apotheosis means, it's something that comes uh, essentially really in earnest out of the early Roman Empire. Essentially, when Julius Caesar died and his adoptive Uh, son or grandson uh, octavian then augustus essentially wants to be able to claim his role of authority he will argue that the senate needs to essentially pass a motion of apotheosis they want to elevate julius caesar to the place of godhood and the roman senate passes that motion they actually make julius caesar into a god which is really nice considering the last thing they did to julius caesar was (laughs) stab him to death right They make him a god. They worship him as a god. And that's the inauguration of what will later be known as the imperial cult. Augustus will also become a god. And you see, it was a savvy move for Augustus to do that, right? Because when he made Julius Caesar a god, guess who he is? He's a son of God. In the coinage of that time, he actually will claim that title himself. One of the things that was one of the most haunting things I discovered in my studies for this project was that most of the Christian persecutions that were the most violent and and, and really the, the most bloody were not because Christians were declaring that Jesus was Lord. It's because they refused to declare that Caesar was. Here's a haunting truth. Caesar is very much okay with you worshiping Jesus and Caesar. But as soon as you make an exclusive claim that Jesus is Lord of all, that the Caesar doesn't get to be on his same level, that's when Caesar gets really angry. That's when Caesar gets violent. That's when Caesar gets bloody. It's when you refuse to offer your sacrifice of incense in front of the, the, the magistrate to prove that you're a good citizen of Rome. That's when you lose your citizenship. That's when you're fed to the lions. And the reason I, I mention this is because another interesting painting I wanted to show you is a painting called the Apotheosis of Washington. Now, it's a little hard to be able to see, but at, at the very bottom of the innermost circle is President Washington. And he's in the heavens. There's a very faint rainbow that he's seated on, and that's an image out of Revelation chapter 4. That's a throne that Jesus is supposed to be on. He's in this cloud of pagan gods and goddesses Athena and Neptune, and all, all these gods that represent essentially industries of the American economy. Next to him, at his right hand, is the goddess Columbia. Columbia, by the way, is a really interesting figure. Does anybody know what Columbia is the goddess of? What does she represent? Any notion? Freedom. Columbia is the goddess of freedom. The interesting thing is that Columbia doesn't come from Roman religion at all. Columbia is a goddess we invented. After what is probably our greatest idol, independence, freedom. A good thing that when it becomes an ultimate thing can be truly horrendous. Something that actually will justify itself and allow itself to propagate harm. Now, the only God that's missing from the old pantheon is Jove or Jupiter, Zeus. And the reason why is because President Washington is sitting where he should sit. Do you know where this painting, The Apotheosis of Washington, is? It's underneath the Capitol Duomo in the United States Capitol building. Isn't that odd? That in our national seat of government, that we have elevated a political leader to a place that only Christ should be. This was painted right after the Civil War. It was something that was intended to essentially unite the people inspire them with a sense of religious awe. But why do we appeal to worship when we could just appeal to unity? Why do we appeal to something that is this, this ultimate thing? Something that has uh, been another idea rolling around in my head lately is this idea of nationalist eschatology, the promise of the triumphant return. I mean, this is something that's also an ancient idea. Have you, have you heard of the once and future king, Arthur? It's a part of kind of like the British national identity is like the return of King Arthur. Like there's going to be a new and better King Arthur. Maybe King Arthur himself will come back and restore us to greatness. Something that I believe has been one of the most enduring and seductive aspects of the QAnon movement is that it's constantly casting an eschatology. A day of judgment that's going to come. A day when true justice will reign. The end is always around the corner. They're reading the utmost significance. Reading the next Q drop like they're reading the book of Revelation. Or the statement. Or... a a post by the president or former president trump and that idea is if you challenge a person who's caught up in this what they will tell you likely in full sincerity is you'll see you'll see it's coming our day of judgment is coming our day of vindication is coming and then there will be peace at last the kingdom will be great when it comes I know you're Anglicans. A lot of you here, and so uh, best way to say it, it: what I see in the QAnon community is it's always Advent, but never Christmas. <laughs> it's always longing for the kingdom to come, but it doesn't happen. The reason this matters, and this is something of, that more is more related to my current research, is that when we embrace one doctrine of nationalism, a, a, a reappropriated doctrine that should be Christian, but nationalism has reappropriated, we embrace and we redefine a constellation of other doctrines as well. So when a leader becomes our Messiah, all of a sudden, he's not able to be challenged because he's infallible. We no longer need evidence because we are those that can trust his word based on faith alone. And you see, to embrace a Messiah, it's, it's not something that is ever done on a rational level. I mean, few people that are actual Christian nationalists would ever say, I've you know, accepted President Trump as my personal Lord and Savior. It's not something that happens on the register of the mind. It's something that is more in align with the the religious affections of the heart. It's something that is operating almost unconsciously on the level of imagination. But this is what happens when we redefine the highest good, when we start redefining salvation, when we start redefining the chosen people and who are the chosen people. When we start envisioning eschatology, the new heavens of the earth, or great judgment in terms of political outcomes. This obscures the worship of Christ, I contend, and it replaces the worship of Christ. A vivid illustration of this is when Mike Pence in 2020 told the Republican National Convention and exhorted them to run the race marked out for us and to let us fix our eyes on old glory and all she represents. He's quoting, obviously, Hebrews 12. And what did he do there? Who are we supposed to fix our eyes on? Is it old glory? No, right? He literally takes a verse out of the Bible and replaces the name Jesus with old glory. And all that she represents. He's substituting Jesus with something else. And I think this is a a symptom of something much greater. And what I want you to see in this is that Christianity, or Christian nationalism rather, does not promote Christianity. It perverts Christianity. It does not advance the kingdom of God. It exploits the people of God. Christian nationalism is not Christianity influencing and forming politics into its own image. It's politics influencing and shaping Christians into the image of a political agenda. Christian nationalism forces the gospel into a Procrustean bed of political expediency, it's rendering to Caesar what should be Christ. And because Christian nationalism defines every doctrine of the faith according to its own needs, its own agenda, it is a different gospel. And it needs to be seen as a false gospel. Christians need to discern it. They need to reject it. And to clearly make a distinction between it and the faith that we have been received, the faith that has been passed down to us, from the apostles until the present generation. Very briefly, the last point I want to explore is a few responses to Christian nationalism. What I hope you see in this is that catechism matters. Understanding the doctrine of our faith, what it is and what it doesn't, is not meant to be, matters. Recently, my own lieutenant governor, Dan Patrick, said the statement that God, not man, wrote the Constitution. That's an issue of catechesis, right? I mean, what's he talking about? Like, I mean, the three-fifths compromise, is that supposed to be inerrant too? What about the amendments? Never mind the rational absurdities. This is something that is happening on the heart level. And so when we catechize, we need to reimagine catechism as a way that engages not just the mind but the heart, that reshapes the desires of the heart towards a kingdom that is, that is true and beautiful. We need to disciple the church, into understanding really what it means to have an exilic identity. Peter calls the the Christians in Asia Minor, elect exiles. Yes, you are the chosen people of God. You're welcomed into his covenant community, but this world is not your ultimate home. The nation you're living in right now cannot be your ultimate allegiance. Nevertheless, we are to love the city to which we've been sent. Like the people of the Jewish exile love the city of Babylon. We need to pursue Things like racial reconciliation, not as a partisan issue, but as something that matters because it displays the manifold wisdom of God to the nations. It shows a watching world, the way of life, that is only possible because Jesus Christ is alive. It matters. We need to have a politics of hope. Whenever we forget eternity, we will necessarily make every single political outcome something of ultimate worth. It's always the most important election, right? It's always the most important election of our lifetime. It's because we really do believe, and oftentimes, even though we say we believe in eternity, we really do believe the here and now is of ultimate import. It helps us placing eschatological import on political outcomes. And we need to be a people mindful of spiritual warfare. The church itself is a declaration of spiritual warfare. The people of God coming together, rich and poor, men and women, people from all different ethnicities, worshiping the living King, Jesus Christ, is a display of the manifold glory of God. That's why when we are to fight spiritual warfare, one of the most amazing things that I saw in New Testament Greek when I first started being able to like discover the New Testament in Greek was that all of the commands in the spiritual warfare passage of Ephesians chapter 6 are in the plural. What that means is you don't wear the armor of God. Y'all wear the armor of God. We wear the armor of God. We're the body of Christ. And we engage in this, this fight together. We stand in Christ together, not as isolated individuals. We need to be a people devoted to prayer, to discern what is true, to see that which is unseen, to recalibrate our lens of what matters through communion with the living God and through fellowship with one another. And we do need to proclaim the word of God. The word of the gospel is a challenge to every single kingdom of man because it declares that Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is. And that is a challenge to the Caesar on the right as well as the Caesar on the left. It is a challenge to all kingdoms of men. It's an announcement that a true king and kingdom is coming and that all babbles, all forms of the Tower of Babel, have been erected through history and in our own cultural moment, they will fall, they will shake, they will crumble. And so I know it's a chaotic time where it's so easy when the world is shaking to put our hopes in the kingdom of man, but we're called to place our ultimate hope, our ultimate allegiance, our ultimate identity, not in political tribes, but in who Christ has called us to be as his people. Christ is the only hope that will not disappoint his kingdom that is coming Is the only kingdom that will not be shaken. So it's good. I want you to know this. It is good to be thankful for your nation, to steward the the privilege of your citizenship if you're a citizen. But know this. The powers are greedy. And they want something more. We must be discerning. and We must keep ourselves from idols. So even as we live in this age of chaos, may we be those that have prophetic eyes to see the glory of the Lord high and lifted up. So why do the nations rage? The psalmist asks. The nations rage because the kings of the earth and the powers that be have rebelled against the Lord and his anointed king, the Messiah. But God is Lord, and he will endure no rival claims. He will prevail. He will reign forever. The nations will rage, and they will not know peace until they rejoice in and take refuge in the Son of God. And praise God, he's not just the Son who is mighty in power. He is the Son who welcomes the weary, the heavy laden, to find rest and restoration that can be found only in him. So yes, the moment like January 6th is a day of sadness, but for those that have eyes to see, it is also a sacred day, a day on the church calendar, it's the day of hope, a day of the epiphany a day that reminds us that the nations are coming in to the people of God, and they will come, and as they come unto the end of the age, they will bring their glory into the new Jerusalem. I thank you for your time. I wish you all the best.
0: All right, everybody. Wow, that was a great lecture. David, thank you again for taking the time to be with us tonight. It was a pleasure. Um, so we, had, we got like 30 questions probably. Um, I was spending the whole time copying and pasting questions from my phone. So if, if you want to like text me in the future, you have my number now. Um, and we, we, we unfortunately can't get to all of the questions, but we got a lot of good ones. So we kind of narrowed it down to is uh, is all the best ones we could, but there were some we just, we just don't have time to get to. So um, we'll hang out for a bit afterwards too. I think Al wants everyone out of here by nine-ish probably. Um, so maybe 9.15. I don't know. We'll see. What, is there a time that you want to everybody out? Nine? Well, it's, oh, it's eight. We might, be, we might be finishing the Q&A at nine. So if you want to hang out for a little bit, David will be here. Uh, worst case scenario, we'll just step outside on the deck and, and he's happy to talk with you. David does have his book available for available for purchase there's a qr code on a piece of paper over there and you can just venmo him the money so it's a kind of an honor system thing so just grab a book venmo him the money you can even send him a tip if you want to um he paid for his own flight out here so um twice. Yeah. yeah twice yeah his flight actually got canceled today so he had to book another one so anyway um so let's get these questions so first question, pretty simple, is what's a good resource for a Christian basis for patriotism, not specifically American patriotism?
1: Yeah, so in a lot of ways, it, it's a question I get a lot because what I critique is basically a kind of a, a, a disordered love for a nation. And so the, the question is provoked, what is a rightly ordered love? And so in some ways, I feel like I, uh, to maybe use an illustration, I wrote a book critiquing the prosperity gospel, but I did not write a book, you know, like how to manage money well, you know? And so um, I, I'm still asking that question myself. I do know a few resources are out there right now that are kind of being uh, emerging. There's a pastor, there's very few pastors trying to write about this right now because it is a, a costly topic to be able to address. But there is a pastor who I believe lives in Mississippi who wrote a book called Biblical Patriotism. His name is Adam Wyatt. Um, and I've, I've been exposed to a lot of his ideas to be able to just appreciate a, a lot of what he's trying to be able to bring to the table. Is basically saying and how he sees biblical patriotism is, is basically examining the idea of citizenship um, from a biblical standpoint, um, opposing nationalism, but also opposing what he calls cosmopolitanism. Um, uh, Richard Mao also recently wrote a book I, I want to say it's something, something the, uh, along the lines of loving one's neighbor it was, it's, it's patriotism understood as a form of love of neighbor and um, I, I would uh, really commend his work to you on that as
0: well great thank you so, uh, next question um, comes from a man named Paul um, how is critiquing Christian nationalism any different than critiquing modern American Christianity what's the difference if there is one is critiquing Christianity, Nash, Christian nationalism just one way for Chris, Christianly religious Americans to distance themselves from Trump types, yet protect themselves from making any actual changes to their worldview? Yeah, so I really do sincerely believe with the utmost
1: conviction that Christian nationalism and Christianity are two different religions. And hopefully, as we especially got a little bit later into the talk tonight, you're able to see that... Christian nationalism offers basically a redefinition of everything that is the, an article of the Christian faith. It has its own Christology. It has its own doctrine of salvation. It has its own um, vision of who the, the chosen people are, of who uh, of how we are to see ultimate destiny in some sense. And so the reason that I'm writing that is not to basically distance you know uh, myself or Christians from Trump, but in, in some ways hear it as a critique of I'm trying to, as a pastor speak to people that I love, people that I'm a part of, to be able to actually engage something that I think is a threat to them. And and so sometimes uh, we are conditioned in just this environment uh, of our moment to simply shout at one another and shame one another and yell at one another. And the thing that we're least likely to do is to try to speak truth to our own tribe. And and essentially I'm trying to be able to do the humble work of speaking truth to, to people that I love of something that I believe is deceiving them. And, and so I, do, uh, I don't I do believe it's trying to basically um, distance ourselves as if it's like a PR stunt, so to speak, but more so it's saying, like, there are idols in the temple, and we need a clean house, and uh, we need to be able to, uh, in some sense, um, be able to address um, the, the, the sin that we're tempted towards and the temptation that we're facing if we are to offer anything that is meaningful and... Um, And needed to a world that needs the hope of the gospel of Jesus.
0: Yeah, good answer. Um, Next question is, what can we learn from our international uh, brothers and sisters around the world in terms of engaging with and dealing with Christian nationalism?
1: So two quick points on this. Number one is, especially on the theology of powers and understanding just kind of what one author calls biblical realism, it is crucial to be able to listen to other voices uh, around the global church. And in fact, a lot of the scholars that I rely on Um, to um, specifically think through issues like the the principalities and powers are actually theologians that are coming from Africa. Um, uh, Two two theologians in particular that are from Ghana are uh, theologians I use as primary resources because they're able to, in some ways, see beyond the imminent frame. They're able to more easily intuit um, and understand reality as something more than mere matter In motion, And so I would say that um, there are brothers and sisters uh, around the world that do have a lot to speak to us, especially in terms of our theological blind spots. Um, uh, Secondly, not just like one of the things I think is a really amazing aspect of the doctrine of the church is that the church doesn't just span space, it spans time as well. And so we can actually look to uh, brothers and sisters uh, around the world that don't even live in the same moment as we do, um, but maybe live in a similar moment as we do. And so um, uh, a group of people that I'm really interested in studying right now is uh, a group of Christians called uh, the Confessing Christians or the Confessing Church. Uh, if you're familiar with that, essentially it was the, the group of Christians that um, directly opposed the way that Hitler was trying to uh, essentially uh, claim authority over the German Church. And to maybe take a little bit longer on, on this one, um, you know, as Germany is coming out of World War I, they are kind of, you know, pinned with the bill for everything. You know, the Treaty of Versailles basically says, we're going to make Germany pay for everything. Um, it's, it's basically their fault, and there's a lot of devastation to the German economy that happens. Um, there's a lot of resentment in um, the the German people towards the nations of the world that are around them. They, they feel like that everybody's out to get them, and there's also um, this thing that happens with you know, the American stock market crash where there's further economic instability. And so at that period of time, there are a lot of intellectuals in Germany as well as all around the world that are saying, you know, Germany would be really easy to fall into Marxism at this moment. And the Bolshevik Revolution had happened really recently in living memory. And so there's a lot of people in Germany that are thinking that could happen here. And so for that reason, There's such a fear of kind of like more the like the 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 radical side of um, the left of what could happen in Germany that there are German evangelical Christians, some of the very famous living theologians of that historical moment, that are willing to be able to be co belligerents with a guy like Hitler, because Hitler comes along and he's like, I'm going to make us prosper again. I mean, he really his I mean, a lot of Hitler's uh, his game plan was like, I'm going to make Germany great again. And so in doing that, one of the first things that uh, Hitler does as a German chancellor is he installs a guy known as the, the Reichsbishop. Basically, he wants to install a leader over the German state church that is going to cooperate with the, the Nazi agenda. And theologians and thinkers like Karl Barth, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, are basically saying, this is something that we can endure. This is something we're not going to allow. We are going to be people that we're going to rise to the occasion, and and we're going to say that Jesus is Lord over the church, not Hitler, that we acknowledge no other Fuhrer except for Jesus Christ. And and so there there was this this challenge that basically said the church is to acknowledge no other ultimate authority other than the word of God, and it was very costly for them. Bart was exiled, ultimately. Um, A man like Dietrich Bonhoeffer loses his life, but there was a, a faithful remnant, a faithful witness that was able to, to stand against some of the radical extremism that was coming at German Christians from all standpoints. And so I think that looking at something like the, the Confessing Church is like a really helpful uh, parallel in this particular moment right now to see how can we learn from brothers and sisters um, that have,
0: have gone through things that, that might speak to our current moment. It's good. Why should people who are not Christians even give a shit that a talk like this, excuse me, he, somebody else texted it, so I'm just reading uh, That a talk like this is even happening tonight, or even a book like David's is even out there. Haven't they mostly ruled out Christianity as anything viable already? How is this talk not kind of inc- inc- incestuous? If you choose this one... Oh, wait. That's part of my text. He says, okay. that if you choose this one, make sure to say shit and incestuous. <laughs> Thank that's you. A, that's funny.
1: So, he did thought- successfully say shit and incestuous, and so that part is, is achieved. The... Um, so, I mean, I understand the, 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 the idea behind the question, but again, the idea is I'm trying to speak truth to Christians. And so, in many ways, like, I'm expecting the primary audience of this book to be Christians and Christian leaders. And so, there's I would love for people that are not Christians and, um, or Christian leaders to be able to read my book. But again, the reason I'm writing this book is is primarily... I'm wanting to speak to people who believe the Bible, who believe in theology, in biblical and theological categories, right? And so the reason it matters is because a Christian who is tempted towards Christian nationalism isn't going to change their heart because you yell and scream at them and try to shame them into silence. That's not going to work. That's only going to make them more defensive. That's going to make them only feel more justified in what they believe, and kind of the the narrative of victimhood and martyrdom that they're already committed to. The best way is to enter into sincere good faith dialogue on shared premises. And and what I'm trying to be able to to, uh, suggest is that if we can come at this in biblical language and in Christian theological language, we might be able to convince some people that otherwise would not be convinced. And there have been people that I've talked to that have said, okay, like some light bulbs went off. Like I understand some of the things that you're saying and I understand that we, we are going too far in this. Um, or people that have read the book and they're like, man, I'm starting to see this Messiah thing all over the place. Like once you see it, you can't unsee it. And so it's trying to be able to equip them to be able to, to do that. But the reason I would say why should a non-Christian read the book if it's, it's a question that's asked with any level of sincerity is... If you want to actually try to convince someone that is prone towards this, maybe speak in language that they would understand. And this is language, I hope, um, that they would be able to understand or at least um,
0: have a conversation that would be in good faith about. Yeah, I was even thinking when you were saying that, um, that Jonathan Haidt, who's an atheist and a sociologist, um, he wrote a book called The Calling of the American Mind, The Righteous Mind. Um, he would agree with most of the premises of your book because he basically says we've evolved – uh, to need religion, and now that yeah. now that in in uh, secular kind of modern Ameri- modern West, we don't have God anymore, so we put politics in the kind of the category of transcendence. So he yeah. would actually agree, I think, with yeah. the notion because he he supports religion as a as a means for kind of how we've evolved and how our societies work. So. Certainly. Um, next question: I'm wondering why you don't put the word white in front of Christian nationalism. The mythology of Christian nationalism is tied in with a very white supremacist mythi- mythiolo- mythology ingrained in the collective cultural mindset? Would you even have cultural Christ- uh, American Christian nationalism without white supremacy? Okay. It's a great
1: question, a very thoughtful question, and I want to just at least affirm that what we are experiencing now typically when we call Christian nationalism in America is, is best probably understood as white Christian nationalism. With that said, The reason I wrote the book the way that I did is I wanted to zoom out and do a broad angle lens. I wanted to show that nationalism is a universal temptation, that it is something that is not unique just to white people. It's not unique just to Americans. It's not unique just to people who happen to be on the political right end of the spectrum. It is something that has happened all across history. But with that said, it is helpful to at least acknowledge openly that the most noxious, and the most unified form of nationalism that's operating in our society that we share together is white Christian nationalism. What I mean by that is it is the type of ideology that right now is collectively seeming to not just threaten violent things, but is starting to build a justifying rationale for political violence. And it is something that is statistically proven that a lot of political violence are, is happening, kind of people with identify themselves in this particular way. And it's very unified. And so um, this might be challenging for for some folks, but the left, even in America, is fully capable of nationalist thinking. Um, The difference is right now the left is not unified in terms of what type of nation it wants. It's a lot more fragmented. It's a lot more, um, there's a lot of competing narratives in the left that the left has a hard time figuring out a coherent vision. And so the right, though, the right's very unified, and they tolerate absolutely no disagreement or nor, nor dissent. And, you know, events of the recent week have shown that rather well, rather effectively, I think. And, and so it is something that um, is important to be able to name white Christian nationalism for what it is. And I think a lot of um, sociologists have done great work on this. Um, Samuel Perry and Andrew Whitehead Philip Gorski are are major figures that have um, published some major works right now. Um, There's other books um, out there that have done um, a great job naming this. I wanted to basically take a step back. And in some ways, I had to do this, right? Because if I'm going to use biblical and theological categories, I need to go global. I need to do something that is showing that this is something that is uh, a universally tempting form of idol.
0: Um, going back to your Germany uh, illustration, how, how, uh, the question is, are we, how are we most like Germany post-treaty of Versailles? I mean, the
1: authoritarianism is really attractive in moments of instability. Authoritarianism um, creates, it offers, lo- it offers a sense of order in the midst of chaos. And so that's very attractive. Whether it's on the right or the left, when you have a very strong figure saying, follow me, and I will show you the way, um, that, that resonates with a lot of people. And, and so I don't think it's an exact parallel, per se, because I do think that um, America is in a place of uh, tremendous global power relative to what Germany was in, um, in, the, in the moment of, of Hitler's rise to power. But what I do think is, is really scary, that actually the better, if I can maybe adjust the, even the question, this is something that I've been kind of rolling around in my head right now. I, I think probably the better parallel is not Germany post-Versailles. It's actually Spain post-Versailles. Because if you recall, Spain fought a civil war right before World War II. And it was kind of in some ways the, uh, the preamble or the microcosm of what World War II would become. And it really was a nation that had become extremely polarized, um, extremely prone to um, uh, extremism and violence. And um, essentially, it even morphed into the point to where I feel like if a sincere Christian that was trying to faithfully cra- practice their Christianity, they didn't have a lot of great options in terms of where am I going to put my political hope? And uh, what ends up happening is the, the Catholic Church kind of unites with uh, Franco, um, the, kind of the fascist general, and um, the Catholic Church has an enduring problem of its credibility and its witnessed that last until this day. I mean, we're, we're less than hundred years since Spain fought a civil war, and it did absolutely um, just tremendous damage to uh, a nation that at one point in time was uh, much more flourishing and significant than it is now.
0: Yeah. This question actually just came in while, while we've been doing the Q&A, and I thought it was relevant, so you haven't read it yet. Um, got it. How do you validate military service to your country with everything you've discussed? Absolutely, yeah. And so,
1: well, I, I do think it can be validated. Um, I'll, I'll go out and say that. I, I feel like... Um, John the Baptist, you know, is talking to Roman soldiers, and he seems to make room for them to be able to faithfully repent and walk with the Lord without necessarily leaving their vocation. And so um, with that said, uh, the the military community intentionally um, does a lot of rhythms and and rituals that um, cultivate a, a love that can easily be absolutized. Um, for the nation, and so I would say, as a Christian, um, you need to be in community with other Christians that happen to be in the military. Um, I would I would pursue people that are out of the mil- military and Christians, and 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 really harvest any wisdom that you possibly can, and and really stay committed to spiritual disciplines um, because the rhythms of the military are forced uh, upon those that are in the military, um, but the the rhythms that that continue to form us. In Christ-likeness, whether in community or in, as individuals, need to be something that are, are really important to be able to make sure that
0: that love is rightly ordered. Yeah, that's good. Um, this one uh, is a little long. I read most of your book and really appreciate it. I believe that nationalism and even Christian nationalism has been a problem for a long time. It has blinded America and other Christian states to their collective sins, Christians in quotes. It has taken many forms and different political perspectives. Nevertheless, our current concern is still somewhat different. A majority of American Christians are literally worshiping Donald Trump. Maybe it started as a worship of nation or specific conservative conservative political philosophy of nation, but now it is the worship of one man. What do we do with that?
1: I mean, that's we have to be able. Well, for a long time, I do think well-meaning churches said, we want to just be completely apolitical. Um, and what happens when the church is intentionally silent on a given issue, we basically say we are ceding that issue of discipleship to culture. And so we're, we're dealing with you know, decades of Christians that have essentially been catechized via cable news. And, and that's what it looks like right now. We're, we're living in that reality. And so I would say the thought that comes to mind is that the gospel is political. It has political implications. But while the gospel is political, it is not partisan. Um, the, the, the gospel will challenge and confront and give prophetic witness to Caesar on the left and Caesar on the right. It doesn't care if it's blue Caesar or red Caesar. It just is going to confront Caesar. And we have to be able to, to be those that are willing to break from um, maybe political affiliation or political party whenever we feel like there has been something that is, is going against Christian, uh, you know, a, a, a Christian gospel-formed belief on a given issue, and we need to be able to speak up to that, and so if you're, you know, a more conservative-leaning Christian, and you, you like that, we need to, we need as Christians within that space, speak prophetically within that space to our fellow conservatives, and the same thing is true on the left, um, whenever um, we're operating outside of that, but the, the, the tendency is like, well, we just have to be utilitarian. We have a two-party system, we just got to get the guy that we want that's in charge or the girl that we want in charge. And it just allows us this mentality to justify not speaking up when policies are clearly advocating for something that is outside of uh, what we feel called is to
0: be true and right. It's great. Um, so we got a few more questions um, and unfortunately we're just out of time Um, it's 8.45 Um, Dave is going to hang out if your question didn't get asked feel free to come up to him Buy a book, help him pay for his canceled flight. Um, Unfortunately, the beer and wine is no longer for sale, so that's gone. But the kitchen, I think, over there is still open. Yes, buy baked goods, buy some tea, whatever. Anyway, thanks for coming out, guys. Uh, Be sure to follow uh, Theology on Tap Chattanooga on Facebook. We will release this episode as a podcast, and also we recorded the video version so that we can show the art. Uh, So, you know, if you want to send that to your crazy uncle, you can do that. Um, Anyway, thanks for coming out. Let's give a hand for David. Thank you, David. Thank you, guys. Appreciate you all. Thank you for coming out.